For years, companies have been talking about digital transformation, but many are still trying to figure out what might be the best pathway for transitioning their operations onto a more automated platform. The idea of digitizing sounds great. Executing on it often seems daunting. And in fact, it can be. As a result, companies end up with a compilation of old and new solutions, which can be less efficient and actually cost them more than taking the leap to fully digitizing. Today's guest is going to be talking about how companies of all sizes can not only take advantage of cloud-based solutions, but can get greater use out of solutions they're already paying for. I'm Jane Singer, and it's great to have you as part of our global community of industry leaders here on A Seat at the Table. Andrew Cohn is Managing Director of NetSurit, a $30 million MSP firm that helps organizations take advantage of the latest technology to enhance their business by providing a roadmap to evolve their IT infrastructure. In this episode, Andrew discusses barriers companies face in getting from discussing to implementing digitization in their organizations how companies can establish metrics around both people and operational automation, and what companies can do now to add more stability and resilience to their operation. For an organization to make a successful digital transformation or drive any kind of innovation initiatives, it needs to have the best talent in key roles. In a competitive market, finding and recruiting those people can be challenging. That's why top corporations and even small enterprises rely on AsianNet consultants to help them fill key positions. Since 1988, AsianNet has been working in partnership with its global clients to help them make the right strategic hires. They have a well-earned reputation for being able to fill even those difficult-to-fill positions. So if you need to recruit new talent, or you think that you might be doing that soon, head on over to their website. That's AsianNetConsultants.com. AsianNetConsultants.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Now let's sit down with Andrew and gain some insights into how we might be able to get more out of our SaaS or cloud-based solutions. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here on A Seat at the Table. I think that what you're talking about is really interesting to our listeners because for years, companies have been talking about digital transformation. And even post-pandemic, there has Mm -hmm. still been a lot more talk than action. Mm -hmm. I think that It'll be interesting to hear your experience with this. Well, that's a perfect lead in, actually. So we see that the small businesses have the need or the excitement to quickly jump into innovation, but they have a limitation on terms of team members inside and budget and things that they're not really accounting for for full digital transformation. So their projects have a start and stop type of a mentality instead of a ongoing. We look at transformation as not an end state. It's not perpetual innovation, as we call it. The enterprise companies who work with the larger organizations, they're a different animal. They have a whole innovate strategy, but for them to implement takes a lot of buy-in. It's a very slow process. So they have the ability, they're already scaled, but for them to do expedient innovation is very difficult, even if it's planned for the next several years. So even after the pandemic, everyone adopted what the first level innovation is really just working remote. They're all doing it from all size companies. But now what we do, we have to accelerate and create other business processes and improvements that's where the uptick has been more challenging for all size organizations. I think those are two very good models that you've brought up because we definitely see that happening. Now, in those two different models, and one of which you said is small and eager, but lacks the resources, and the other has the resources, but it's such a big operation that it's very difficult to implement any kind of change. So in each case, how can they 
how can they overcome this? Maybe not completely, but are there steps that each of those instances can take? That's a good point. And I think from an internal point of view, from an SMB level company to companies of what we call like the 50 people to about a thousand people, or maybe a 500, depending on your class, your classification of uh, SMBs, some of us moving to mid-market. Their need is, can we really define a roadmap and a strategy? If they're already not in the cloud, how do they, or whether it's their strategy moved to the cloud? You know, so that's part of step one. If they're not there, they need to have a real kind of roadmap just to even do a digital assessment of what they want to do and how to get that maturity level up so they can actually get to the level where they can start doing innovation. And so digital transformation, we look at it on three pillars. First pillar is the, what you call the foundational level, which is the organizational side. Can you move from traditional systems to cloud-based solutions where you're allowed a lot more mobility and easy access and virtual environments? Once you're there, we look at operational effectiveness, which is where we come to the innovation pieces. And then customer experience level is a third pillar. And as we're doing the outward reaching things too, Customers on two levels, customers internal and external. You know, as we look at customers in both levels, an employee is a customer to us as too. So anyway, for SMB to get there, there's a lot of planning that has to happen. It has a lot of adoption, change management. All these things have to be incorporated. It has to start from the C-suite. It has to be really pushed down. The large organizations is a different level because IT has already been challenged, probably like here, we need to innovate. And here is a, it's mandated by executives, but there's no real, the strategy's there. They have a roadmap. It's probably well-defined but yes, the execution is difficult. So they'll create what we call the center of excellence is the COEs of all these organizations where they build teams that kind of create like where the funnel would come to from all the lines of business that want to maybe do something differently. They're doing things in a traditional method. It's worked for the last eight years. It's job security. We're using traditional manual entry. So for them to move into transformational stage, because these big corporations are already in the cloud, they've adopted all that. They need to understand how to sell that almost internally to their internal customers, which is the employees. So that is a different type of mindset. So they need to turn to sometimes external partners to come in and partner with them to be that partner in that center of almost their automation partner for their center of excellence. So they create the funnel for all lines of business to bring it all in. And then they start to have to show success of success because one thing the lines of business don't do quickly is adopt a change. So that's where I think there's a big change between how you talk to a small business versus the enterprise size. I think there's a really good point. Now, if you're a small business, and you want to get started, and you don't have the resources, as you pointed out earlier, what might be the first steps that you could do? You may not be able to tackle everything at once, but is there some kind of a pathway that they could take that could get them on the road with enough speed that it they're actually starting to see some return on investment, but yet that's with, right. within the scope of what they could reasonably handle? Right. So that's what we look at a lot with companies, how we when we first engage or talk to people, even we share knowledge. It's a lot of things that I do all the time. We talk about how do you leverage your investment fully? So most of these companies will move into a system that is taking advantage of their licenses, but they're only using like the base level. Let's just take, for example, Microsoft 365. Um, every company we talk to has moved to that level. If they're moving from Google, they move to Microsoft. Then they know what they're maybe using 10% of what the solution even offers you. So they're paying a lot of money, even a small company, they're paying a lot of money for those licenses, but taking maybe 10 to 15% of the actual value. So we try to encourage them, take, take a look what's available out of the box, train them up really quickly, find stuff online. You know, there's all these kind of knowledge bases that you can go to online quickly to find quick best practices. But then it gets to a kind of point where they hit like, okay, this becomes a second job. So what they need to do with that kind of scenario is turn to a company such as ours or other companies like ours. They can come in, understand, do a quick assessment of what the challenges are, prioritize what processes, what they're trying to create, 
train them up on the user adoption side so they really get an understanding of the things we call out-of-the-box solutions, which they, they can just turn out without any kind of technical help. And then look at the areas where you can really create business process improvements. Typically, they have to partner out for that. They probably don't have the staff internally on the small side of the companies. So they'll have like a, probably a couple of good IT people internally, and they'll need uh, support from companies that can come in, assess it, and deliver an ongoing delivery in terms of solutions for business process. That's a really good suggestion because you're absolutely right. People do have licenses for a lot of SaaS software, us too, actually, and you yeah. don't use it to its full capacity um, in right. part just because you haven't had time to really sit down and go absolutely. through it in depth. So I think that someone like yourself who knows some of those applications can point out things that they actually could be using that you hadn't even thought about. Right. And you take you speak of very good thing that's going on now in the industry. I mean, the SaaS software is everyone's adopting it. So they use the software for every piece of their business process. So what we look at, we come in and talk about the assessment, what they have. We have to see that full satellites that exist in their ecosystem. So in, in regards to that, we look at what's available and then you look at can they consolidate? Because there might be paying in licenses they don't need because you can leverage other software that already does or replicates what they can do and they have it as free from their existing other systems. So we look at ways of consolidation as one. So you can start turning off some of these extra SaaS ones, or if you want it, they have to be part of the process, how do you connect to those systems? Because typically they're living in five or six different screens, a lot of these companies, and they're not connected. There's no like mechanism to allow people to integrate. So what's really the trend now, and this is the big kind of a caveat here is these other solutions in the SaaS model, they have APIs, which is what allows for a server to server connectivity. So all these solutions offer that. But they're in the tradition now to start charging for those APIs. So you have to be kind of slick. Either you keep that solution and figure a way to get use that API for an additional cost or find ways to work around the API in ways that we call desktop automation. So there's different ways to do it. Do it just because you have these other SaaS solutions doesn't mean you can't integrate. But some people do get re- quick reservation when they see the additional cost that might come into play for some of these SaaS products. I think that's an important point because, and we're guilty of this too, you just keep adding things on and you don't realize how many different things you're running and you're not necessarily running them efficiently. And like you're saying, you have to really look and see, do you have duplication in some places? Can things be integrated better? You just don't think about it. You're so busy just trying to get the work done that sometimes you do need another person who's tasked with doing just that and that understands it has worked, you know, understands the different solutions and come in and give you that assessment and point out where you have redundancies perhaps, or where you have holes that that need to be uh, having something to pull it together. Right. And you don't, we don't introduce, replace it or get rid of it unless it really makes sense. Because if there's things that you have to have in these other solutions, they make sense for the business. We have to look at it case by case. And then we have to really dig deep to understand what it is doing, what kind of things does it fix for the business. And then you determine if it's something that's still needed. Can we replicate it with a cheaper version or leveraging your licenses you have in another solution? And then kind of make decisions there. But it's a very well thought out kind of process and prioritization process. So we look at just ways we can work on that together. It's a very collaborative type of a relationship to help companies understand what they have and where they're trying to get to. We're going to take a quick break now, and then we'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, 
and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you don't really think about it until someone like yourself actually brings it up. Having survived the pandemic and a lot of people feel like they can finally exhale. And yet at the same time, it looks like we're staring down um, a potential global recession. We don't know how severe it might be, but there is definitely a lot of warning signs that things may be becoming a little bit tougher economically. What can companies do now to better position themselves to sort of survive the next era. And I know that basically they should have been doing things a while back. It's a little bit late, but nonetheless, what can people do? You know, that's the thing. The headwinds have been there and, you know, people can read the tea leaves the best you can. My company has been, we're really good about this. That when uh, the executive suite determines there might be a potential, we react and we make, we double down on innovation and ways to automate and not staff up where we had uh, positions before. So it's not that we're looking at a reduction in staff because, you know, currently we're a good position and we're probably hiring, but we also have to look at what's going on and the economic uncertainties. So a lot of the companies we work with of all sizes, they're really leaning into, can we use automation and not rehire after the pandemic? They might've lost a thousand employees or 550 employees, depending on the size of the company. With the solutions that we build in companies like ours, they cannot have to replace a body because they're going to be able to use automation or process improvements to not create redundant type of workforce. So if, if they haven't done that, there might be some reduction in workforce. Unfortunately, it's going to happen. You know, it should have happened already. I think you should have been ahead of it, but most, most companies are not. For what we are in my area of my business, uh, we're in this whole innovate automation space. It allowed these companies to understand and unlock the potential of what could be done with less uh, personnel potentially, or just increase better process improvements to help the profits on the bottom line. So our solutions really work in terms of connecting the people for user engagement, mitigating processes, making it automated versus manual, which creates efficiencies, which all leads to the bottom line profitability. So that allows, even with a company in the current state, if they're not firing, they can be more efficient. And if you can get a 20 to 30% uptick in efficiencies for a person doing their job, that really relates to actually cost savings to the organization. So where we are has been like well-positioned, which is lucky enough, you know, in terms of that being maybe forward thinking about it. But we've been talking about this pre-pandemic and it's now just such a hot topic for every company we speak to, whether it's just a knowledge transfer or just, just talking. It's, just, it's top of mind. So it's not like having to explain innovation, automation, it's what they need. Now, you mentioned automation, particularly mm-hmm. in terms of replacing some of the, the headcount that people mm-hmm. might have had previously. Can you give some examples of, of where that automation might come in? Yes. Let's see. Here's a quick case study because one of our one of our clients, they're a pharmaceutical company. I'm not going to drop the names, obviously, but they have a very large uh, field sales force, thousands of employees, and they had multiple bodies triaging an inbox manually to respond to them. So what happens, the field force is out speaking to the pharmacies, selling, uh, detailing for drug, new drugs, selling new product. But there was also a product supply chain issue. We're talking now against pandemic and all the other things that came along because of that. And the supply chain issues hit on top of everything else. So what was happening in previous state was it was taking 24 to 48 hours for a response from the home office because of manual process of triaging emails and have multiple people making who did what there was no accountability i mean there's accountability but there's no one 
they didn't know where it left off. So there would be even the triage of emails had to be sometimes redundant because they weren't sure if it was even answered. There was no mechanism in place to automate that. So what we did is, and then on the back end of that as well, from when they got the email triage, they had to go check the back end office systems like the Cardinal Health of the world for supply. Was it in progress? Was there supply available? Things of that nature. So we built a solution that automated the uh, whole response chain. So what happens is now these thousands of salespeople have to enter into a mobile app form. It's consolidated so that we can read from our bot and we created a bot for them. So that email gets completely automated. So there's workflows that we enabled. So if it needs action from a human, it alerts them because it might be really a supply chain issue. But once that email comes in, an automated email goes back out. So that person who was, those people that were fielding those emails are no longer doing that part of it. And then on the back end, it's automatically checking the supply chain to see if there's uh, some products available and is it going to be delivered on time, whatever the kind of status is. And then we visualize all that for the team internally into a dashboard so they can see all the different things from those different communication threads from the people where the things are still needing a pending answer if there's a manual thing that does have to get entered in. And it's basically moved that whole thing from a 24 to 48 hour response cycle to three minutes. So what that means to the company when you're in a competitive marketplace selling pharmaceuticals, they're going to get a better opportunity to make that sale versus say, we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours on our supply. So it mitigated that complete issue. And instead of hiring more bodies, they can keep the current headcount and probably look at moving one of those personnel to another area of the business. So that 160 hours they were doing just doing email triage has now been removed. Interesting. I think that's a really interesting way of sort of taking something that previously had been very labor intensive, but not necessarily a good use of staff. A lot of, I'll just say one other case that's very kind of a similar type of client for HR onboarding. This is one that they do a traditional Excel sheet world they live in. There's a really one Excel sheet. They have potentially like hundreds of headcount that come in at one cycle. They all had eight employees working on one spreadsheet where each of them had one hour turn to work on that in a day to do manual data entry, all these kind of connection pieces just to move that person down the line for being a potential hire. And this is also, then they have to do outward communication to the placement agencies. So that was completely visualized now into workflows and what we call like a power app that kind of built all that into a consolidated system. So all eight can work in tandem. Doesn't mean we're trying to reduce headcount because they don't want to remove the body. They can just all work more efficiently and they all can work together instead of waiting for someone's turn to get onto a a spreadsheet, even if it's a shared spreadsheet that was causing problems. So we created a unified uh, application that allows all the workflows to enable, move that uh, HR onboarding process a lot quicker. So three weeks goes down to one week to get that person onboarded. So there's ways to really look at what they're doing on a process, how it's not in the best shape. And then we're not always trying to look at reduction of headcount. That's not my job. You know, my job is to see how we can make the process more efficient by using technology, leveraging that technology and automating uh, where we can. I think that's something that a lot of companies are going to want to be addressing, particularly as staffing has become increasingly expensive and challenging to find the right people. Now, another big topic in both large and small boardrooms is innovation, and you touched upon that earlier. One of the biggest hurdles that a lot of companies face is establishing metrics in order to have better visibility and accountability of any of the initiatives, right, that they're trying to implement. Based on your experience working with a very wide range of firms, how can companies establish metrics around both people and operational automation? Okay, well, this is, okay, now I'm going to have to tell you a little bit about what we do, I think, okay. you know, beyond like in my service. 
One of the things we did is unique, I think, is you know a lot of companies would say they're going to do automation and innovation for companies. But we, we really look at how do we both have a, a literally collective skin in the game with our clients. So we have what we call our innovation service. We offer like this return on innovation guarantee. So everything we do, uh, we define and put a metric tied to it for success. And it has to be agreed upon from the client perspective as well. So what, how this process works is we do workshops together. We identify all the business pains and problems and processes that need improvement. We chart those together, prioritize those, vote on those together, and then we score them. And then we also put a return on innovation uh, calculator against it that we have internal uh, for calculation. Then it could be a time value number. It could be dollars. It could be anything we want to calculate. We just have different ways. It could be user adoption for employee experience. So we look at how do we pull out together. We measure all those together and we display that to the company that we're potentially going to engage with. If we go forward, then we track it. Once the solution gets in place, we're showing that return on innovation guarantee. So let's say for every dollar spent, they can get 105% return. I mean, whatever the number is, depending on what the agreement is, or even more, depends on what they're saving. So it all depends on how they want to, what they want to measure, and then the visibility. That's done through dashboards that we supply. They can log into our portal and they can see how it's tracking. So this five processes can be getting improved in a different staggered state. They'll be showing that metrics of improvement based on the calculation we define together. Now, if a company doesn't want to hire a company like ours, they need to probably set that mechanism internally. Define what the real return is. Why are we doing an innovation piece? Why are we automating something? Don't automate just to use technology because sometimes it's never, it's not a good fit. So when they can put a calculation method in place that shows what the value is, and we constantly say that, what's the value? What are we doing? How big is that gap? What are we mitigating? So that cases I shared before, massive gaps that create an opportunity to fix something by automation. And then it can easily measure in terms of the cost of employee, hours wasted, all these kind of things to a new kind of a metric that can be measured and defined, whether internally or with external partners. You're absolutely right. You have to constantly be pushing yourself to see, are you living up to any of the benchmarks and maybe even adapting benchmarks as you go along? I was just saying, that's what we call like the perpetual innovation. So we, it's ongoing. It's agility. You, know, you have to keep it going. It's not a final destination. You know, maybe it's three years out, you get fully automated or whatever, but there's always new opportunities, new processes that get introduced that you look at ways to potentially uh, mitigate and fix. In the 25 years that you've been working with companies to synchronize people and processes and productivity, what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned? You know, I think the biggest thing that we constantly strive at is we should be taking our own medicine. <laughs> so <laughs> from an organization, I went from a 50-person company to about a 500-person company. We're in a growth stage, you know. So being this acquisition, we always really highly innovative and agile, but we never really are best um, practices of what we preach. So it's hard to do your own homework, I guess, your own work. Right. So our organization has a whole digital transformation steering committee that we're really trying to look at best ways we can automate where we need to in our business. So we've identified like a hundred processes and I wish I would have been doing that all along because once you can find a way to optimize efficiency, especially with a smaller staff. So when my small business mind was on all the time, and we're still a small business, you know, less than 500 people or about 500 people, you look at ways that you can create more with less. So it's something that that lessons learned in 25 years is always like, how do we introduce technology internally to create better efficiencies, not just for our processes, but also it'll help better experiences for our clients. So yeah, it's been a long lesson. Sometimes I made a lot of mistakes along the way. 25 years, God, it's been that long. It's terrible. <laughs> but I look at it and I look at the journey I've taken. And I'll say one thing I did think that beyond that, like being perhaps best we preach, 
always look ahead. Like we talked about the pandemic, look at those issues that could come out eh, that could cause problems, the recessions, things of that nature that you can some predict, some you cannot predict, but always project, project for potentially the worst case scenario. And then just look at how you can just be ready to be reset if necessary, or take advantage of the opportunities when things happen in a bad climate. We're always constantly evolving. I mean, what I was doing 25 years ago, obviously is different completely what I do now. We were doing television broadcast graphics and things like that, <laughs> and what we call it rich media when the internet first came out. And now we're completely in this transformation stage. So it's an interesting journey, but we've always been evolving along the way. So it's been exciting. I like to see what the next steps are going to be for us as we keep evolving. Yeah, it's true. Things are changing so fast now. And you're right. It's when you look back, you can't believe, you know, where where you were and 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 how far we've all come. Well, you've shared so many interesting things, Andrew. I mean, where can people find you? How can people connect with you? Well, let's see. I mean, we are at my company's called NetSurit. And that's, you can go to www.netsurit.com. That's N-E-T-S-U-R-I-T. Still getting used to it because it's a new company for that I'm involved in, but they've been in business as long as I was in, uh, in business. So, you know, this is like-minded came together. When you get to that area, there's a whole area about uh, what we do in the innovate space. Also the other areas of the business, the cybersecurity, the managed services, the things, the core things that I talked about earlier. But where I live is this innovation world. So when you look on that site, you'll see on the innovation. And obviously in LinkedIn, people can go to my profile and I'll definitely put this out, this uh, podcast on my LinkedIn profile as well. And I'm excited that we had this time together. And then just if anyone wants to reach me, you know, I can provide my email as, as well. So I don't know if that's a normal process for you, Jane. Okay. Well, I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes. And I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us here on A Seat at the Table. No, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I know it's late in the day for you and early for me. So I look forward to hopefully having another conversation in the near future. Thank you for joining me here on A Seat at the Table. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something from it, I would love to hear about it. If you'd like to support the show, please hit the subscribe button. And if you can take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or other channels, that would be fabulous. Don't forget to check out our podcast website, seatpodcast.com. That's S-E-A-T podcast.com. If there's something you'd like to share, ideas, suggestions, or comments, please feel free to reach out. I would love to hear from you. Thank you again for joining me and being part of our international community. I'm Jane Singer, and I'll see you in the next podcast episode.